Hey there, I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you are a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. We do this through stories and the stories of other professionals and patients. We listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed provider or practice. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with patients right away. If you're a nurse and you're listening to this today, you can go to rnegade.pro and get credits for listening. You're already doing it, so you might as well get credits too. So as promised, friends, I'm going to do a four-part series on how I talk to my clients about trauma. You can use this format or just kind of the ease of scripts as you think about how you talk to your own patients. I know that talking about trauma feels hard. I think especially healthcare providers who aren't taught how to talk about these types of sensitive issues feel like they have to be a therapist to talk about it, but that's not actually true. If a patient or a parent of a patient, for instance, or a family member is in front of you and they have a history of trauma, you know, you're the only one who doesn't know about it unless you ask. And that means creating a safe space for people to feel like it's okay to disclose their personal histories. I actually think that physicians are primed to talk about this. You talk about so many other sensitive issues, whether it be reproductive health or uh, possibilities of cancer, family histories of heart disease, you're already talking about sensitive things. Recently, I was talking with a group of physicians in my membership, the Provider Lounge, and we were talking about the art of listening. So many things came up as themes. One of them said, this is so important that we listen more. Often when we walk into exam rooms, we feel like we have to solve a problem or write a prescription or make something better. But listening is actually a form of caring. Many of them also said, we just need to slow down. We feel so rushed throughout our day to get through all of our patients that we have to see that we often don't just slow down and listen to the full stories. And many of them testified to the fact that, you know, it hurts them later and it hurts their patients later if they haven't heard an entire history. So they said, you know, you think you don't have time, but it's really imperative to slow down and listen. It really pays off in the long run. Um, So many of your patients are already sharing their personal stories with you. When we think about this like biopsychosocial model, So much of medicine focuses on the biology, but as you know, if you're familiar with adverse childhood experiences or other forms of of stress and adversity, then you know that 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 psychological and emotional part of someone's health affects them greatly and has a huge impact on their biology and on their long-term health effects. So once you begin to understand trauma, how it presents and what it looks like, and you begin to create safety in your office that it's okay for patients to talk about this, it will begin to feel like second nature, just like it would be to ask them about any other part of their health history. It affects their health too. As I was saying, there's a lot of research now that shows that early adversity, ongoing stress, ongoing trauma, and Um, adversity has a long-term effect on people's health. 
Remember that the initial ACEs study really only focused on intrafamilial ACEs, and as the Na National Child Traumatic Stress Network and other folks that really specialize in trauma and adversity begin looking at other dimensions of trauma, like intergenerational trauma, historical traumas, systemic traumas, as well as traumas that people um, experience because of the neighborhood that they live in or being part of a country that has experienced war, individual incidents, what we're realizing is that there are many, many dimensions of recognizing what trauma is and how it presents in our patients. So I thought I would share a story with you about a client of mine. And for the purpose of the podcast today, we'll call her Claire. Like many of you, I have had the good fortune or had the good fortune of seeing Claire for many years over the course of her life. If you're a primary care physician, family medicine, OBGYN, or a pediatrician, you know how much of an impact you can have on a person's life over the course of time. You get lots of visits over periods of time. So I had the incredible pleasure of working with this young woman from about the time she was seven or eight years old, and now she's a young adult. And she wasn't seeing me in therapy every week or twice a week for many years. It was kind of off and on and sporadic as needed. Um, anyway, lots of trauma um, in her life, in her history. There had been emotional abuse from her parents, one of her parents, a lot of emotional and physical neglect where Claire felt like she really had to take care of herself or no one else would, um, sexual trauma that she experienced from a partner, and she also witnessed domestic violence and arguing between her parents, um, addictive behaviors such as drugs and alcohol. So she, if we looked at her ACE score, she definitely had a high ACE score and experienced significant trauma in her life. Well, now as a young adult, sometimes she gets perplexed by how trauma shows up for her and even frustrated with herself. It might look like depression. It might look like ways that it shows up somatically in her body with headaches or, or tummy aches, migraines. Sometimes it looks like avoidance of activities, um, feeling like I want to hang out with friends, but I don't at the same time. Lots of anxiety around school. Um, now she's a young adult and she's in college, but sometimes she'll feel like um, she's dreading going to class or participating, um, relationship woes, just feeling almost avoidant of relationships at time, but desperately wanting them also. So I'm also amazed at the same time, like I was saying, there's a lot of her symptoms that perplex her about her trauma or frustrate her, even though at this point, Claire knows it really is a sign of early trauma that she experienced. But I'm also amazed at how much healthier she is. And she recognizes that she's so much healthier than her family of origin. You know, she's been in and out of treatment with me for, uh, gosh, 13 years now. Uh, and so she understands that her feelings are a way of expressing herself. She, she knows how to verbalize what's happening internally for her. She understands that it's not her fault, that the traumas that she experienced weren't something she signed up for. They were uh, part of the environment she was brought into. She also understands what intergenerational trauma is, and she wants something different for her future. For those of you that aren't familiar with the term intergenerational trauma, it's trauma that happens within a family and um, is kind of handed down 
generation after generation, obviously not purposefully, but it's things like alcohol abuse or addiction, things that really interfere with the parent's ability to parent or be present for their child. It could be things like corporal punishment. Um, But Claire really understands that there's been a lot of intergenerational trauma. She understands how her parents parented her and how her parents were parented. But nonetheless, she gets really frustrated sometimes, and and that's understandable. She gets uh, uh, frustrated with her family, like, why didn't my parents have kids that that seems like they didn't want, they didn't treat very well? Um, She gets frustrated with herself because the trauma will pop up in ways that she doesn't expect, like I was mentioning before, wanting to be in a relationship, but feeling hesitant about relationships at the same time. And she just gets really triggered easily. And it might be something like startling easily or not wanting to engage in self-care. Sometimes she'll just get really frustrated and say, you know, gosh, darn it, Amy, this, this thing has really messed me up. I'm so messed up. And what I say to her is this, you know what, Claire, your brain is beautiful. And what it's done over the course of the last 13 years is protect you. It protected you when you were little so that you didn't have to kind of absorb all of the trauma that was there. Um, She'll ask me things like, you know, Dr. Amy, am I crazy? Like, did this actually happen? Did, Did my mom actually drive drunk with me in the car? Or did she actually scream at me that way? And we'll take a minute to tune into her body, remember her five senses, smells, sounds, tastes, And she gets grounded very quickly and she'll kind of sit back and say, oh yeah, that happened. So often we'll use that as a way to tap into helping her feel less kind of in her words, crazy. And what I would say is she just is probably feeling questioning or dissociative at the time. Again, what I'm trying to underscore for Claire is that when she was little and in the car with someone who was supposed to love and protect her and probably did love her, but was suffering from a significant addiction, that person wasn't able to keep her safe, but her brain kept her safe by blocking out some memories, not being able to recall things until she was older and really had the time and ability and energy to process it. And so we talk a lot about the neurobiology of Claire's brain. When we explain to our patients neurobiology, brain-based behavior, what happens is it allows them to externalize and, and know that like, this wasn't my fault. My brain was set up to protect me in really fascinating ways. There are parts of my brain that are responsible for storing memories, for instance, so that I remember to not put myself in that situation again. Or there's parts of my brain that might be hypervigilant to experiences so that I prevent further harm for myself. And she doesn't need to know all of the fancy parts or the fancy names for all of these parts. She just needs to know that her brain is incredible and protective and that none of this happened was her fault. That way she can learn about trauma, um, be curious about it, watch it from the outside and see how it looked like when Claire was nine versus when Claire was 12 versus when she was 16 and and now a young adult. When we do that, when we talk about the protective mechanism of the brain and the neurological structure, then we can begin to create new tools to build resilience. 
We can learn ways to express feelings and really uh, tap into the parts of her feelings that are about shame, sadness, overwhelm, allowing her to feel grief for the young person that wasn't cared for. She's able to begin to integrate and reflect on her biofeedback and know when she feels triggered and know how that comes up in her body, which helps her regulate herself and and figure out ways to calm herself, whether it's doing deep breathing or going for walks or playing a sport or going for a run. And yet she still gets frustrated with herself. And when she says, you know, dang it, Amy, like, I thought I had this under control and I got triggered today, or, you know, I was in this really great conversation with a friend and yet I still felt scared. Um, I felt like she was going to abandon me, or I was in this relationship with my partner and talking with him today. And all of a sudden I just felt flooded with fear and trepidation. And what I say to her is, wow, look at your brain. Look at how protective it is of you. It's searching for ways to keep you safe because you didn't feel safe. But now you can ground yourself when you're talking with your girlfriend or talking with your partner and you can recognize, ah, this isn't the same as the experience I had when I was nine or 12 or 16. This is a safe person. This is somebody who wouldn't hurt me. But that takes a lot of work on Claire's part. So I really continue to talk about that protective mechanism and the neurobiology of the brain. If it's helpful, here's an analogy that I often use. I tell my clients, it's kind of like tying your shoes, right? If your whole life you spent uh, your life tying your shoelaces like bunny ears, right? Where you have one loop on one side and one loop on the other, and then you tie them together. And then I all of a sudden say to you, I know a different way to tie your shoes. You can just make one loop on one side and then twist the other string around it and pull it through. It's foreign, right? It's like, what? I've been doing it this way the whole time, aka I've been hypervigilant and avoidant and sad and questioning because that's what my trauma told me to do. And so that's how I am in relationships now. And I say, I think there might be another way. I think we might be able to pay attention to your body and recognize why you feel hypervigilant sometimes and recreate new, safe, meaningful relationships that are protective with people who would love you and not want to hurt you. But for someone like Claire, it's like I'm asking her to tie her shoe a different way when she's tied it one way for more than a decade. And yet what happens is if I can help Claire recognize, ah, this is a trauma trigger. This is my brain doing its job, being incredible, being beautiful and protective. I need to tie my shoes differently. This can feel differently for me. I can tune into my body. I can express my feelings. I can ask someone for what I need. I'm no longer unsafe right now. I am safe. I am grown. I can do this. And what she does essentially with her neurobiology, all these little synapses and connections in her brain as she makes the loop on one side and twists the string around and pulls it through versus going back to the bunny ears every time. You can imagine what I'm trying to do with Claire is get her to do the new way of tying her shoes so that this new way becomes the new pattern. 
And that is the incredible beauty of neurobiology. We can actually retrain our brains to think and respond to trauma differently, but it takes time. It takes patience and understanding of how incredible our brains are and how they're just built to protect us. And then it takes kind of a retraining, but I had to tell you, it's why I love what I do. It's why I love talking about resilience and teaching resilience, because it's really about understanding new behaviors. Resilience can be taught and modeled that that idea that we can heal from trauma is possible. There is hope. And we do that by kind of recreating experiences, being gentle with ourselves when trauma comes up, saying to our brain, you know, thank you, brain. Thank you for protecting me. I've got this now. I learned something new. I'm going to try it a different way. And then Claire goes back to tying her shoes and figuring it out. And pretty soon those behaviors of tying the bunny ears together that lead to so much frustration and loneliness and isolation now become tying shoes in a different way where there's felt safety and self-acceptance and healing. So that's it for today, friends. I'll see you next time. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you and keep sharing your own because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.